This episode of Reading Women is sponsored by Book of the Month. Learn more about how you can subscribe to Book of the Month later in this episode. Hello, I'm Kendra Winchester, and this is Reading Women, a podcast inviting you to reclaim half the bookshelf by discussing books written by about women. Today, I'm talking to Mina Kandasami, the author of When I Hit You, or A Portrait of a Writer as a Young Wife, which is out now from Europa. So a couple years ago, this book was shortlisted for the Women's Prize over in the UK. And when I went to go buy myself a copy, I realized it's it wasn't available or published in the US. So when I saw that Europa was publishing this book, I was absolutely thrilled and was so honored that Mina was up for coming on the podcast to talk about her book. So the book itself is about a young woman who finds herself in a very abusive marriage where her husband is isolating her and manipulating her, removing her sources of information and ways that she can communicate with the world at large. And it was a very emotional book to read. But I think it's an incredible book, not because of just what the book is is doing on a sentence-by-sentence level, but because of the thought process and the conversations that it's starting, not only now in the UK, but also here in the United States. Uh, Mina Kandasami is a writer of many different kinds of writing. Uh, She has written poetry, auto-fiction, fiction, fiction, uh, and Also, she's a translator as well, which she talks a little bit about in the interview. And uh, she has received so many awards and honors and fellowships, and she's just an accomplished writer. So I'm so thrilled to be able to share this interview with you. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Mina Kandasami. Uh, so, Mina, I am so excited to have you on the on the podcast today. Yeah, I'm very happy too, Kendra. Thank you for having me. Your book, um, When I Hit You, is just coming to the United States. And I'm always interested to hear, after your, your book came out a few years ago um, in the UK, so what's it like to now bring the book to a new country and, and get the different perspectives on a, a book that I guess you wrote several years ago by this point? It's always interesting, even even publishing in one's own country, because by the time you write, it's at least a year of, you know, sending it to your agent, your agent sending it to others, and the editor putting their head together, then, you know, them editing it, and then scheduling it. So always there's this complete lag between when your book hits the market and when you actually have finished writing it and actually got yourself, extricated yourself out of the book. So I think there's kind of, you know, a really big gap for me because... I think I finished writing this book um, the end of um, 2015, I think. And uh, yeah, then it was published in 2017 in the UK. Now it's like 2020, so I have a good five years between me and the book. So it's a lot of distance, I should say. Uh, but I'm also really happy to you know, get published in the States in the end, you know, because um, it's really a very different audience, but also... I think there's been so much conversations happening there around women, women's rights, violence, toxic masculinity. Yeah, it just leaves me very curious to see how this book does there. What are the conversations it starts or how does it 
fit into other conversations. I was so thrilled to hear that Europa was publishing your book because I remember when it was shortlisted for the Women's Prize and I looked for this book like everywhere and then I finally realized that it's not even published in the United States yet. So uh, when I heard that it was coming out, I was just so excited and I sent messages to all my friends that it was finally coming here. So uh, I'm I'm very happy for you as well. Thank you. Uh, so... This is your second novel. Mm-hmm. Um, your third novel, I believe, is just releasing in the UK. Is that correct? Uh, it was released in November. So yeah, November. Okay. A couple of months, but yeah. Okay. So you kind of have like two children coming out at the same time, as it were. I imagine there must be a lot jumping back in between the two stories to talk about them. Oh, yeah, yeah. You, what you say, what you say is, um, is quite interesting because um, the book's actually out at the same time also and it's translated versions, so it's coming out in German, French, Italian, and of course American. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of, you know, pulling yourself back and, you know, getting into the frame of mind to, to address it, but also address the third novel, which is out, uh, which is more or less a kind of response novel to this one. Yeah, I was listening to an interview that you had, I think on, was it the Guardian Books podcast? Mm-hmm, yeah. And that was really interesting to hear you discuss um, to hear you discuss this book. And I don't want to jump the gun on some of the topics that were covered there. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's absolutely fascinating how the books two books work together. I might just have to order it from the UK um, so that I could read, you know, read the next one closely to when I finish this one. But I wanted to ask you a little bit about where When I Hit You come from, um, because it's such a unique story and it's told in such perfect ways that might be considered non-traditional, but I think they work so well with the story. So after you finished your debut novel, um, how did you decide that you wanted to work on When I Hit You as your next book? And how did that process start with that? So it's 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 quite interesting because... In ter- in, strictly in terms of chronology, but also in terms of inspiration, obviously, uh, When I Hit You is autofiction. It's uh, loosely based on autobiography and then, you know, is reworked into the narrative framework and arc of a novel. But, um, you know, in terms of, um, it, for me, it was so important to actually write the first novel first, you know, to write Gypsy Goddess first because uh, Gypsy Goddess was written and finished around 2012-13, shortly after I had left my marriage. And obviously, so this was a story I was carrying within me, but Gypsy Goddess was also a story I had been carrying with me for like six, seven years before, because I had been researching it for a long time. And for me, it was so essential to, you know, you're a young woman of color uh, writing, and, you know, so often we end up writing... Uh, or we end up being seen as people who write only our stories or, you know, that there's only one story we can say, which is the story of what happened to us. So there was this whole idea that, no, 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 I know that you're carrying this within you, but you just have to put it aside and you have to work on what you actually started many, many years ago, which was this work on a political story of a massacre, which was completely, yeah, traumatic, but also needed to be told. So obviously, once I finished that, I could get into the headspace for what I had kept aside, which was, you know, like, how do you how do you make art out of something? It was it's quite an intricate way to say the story, because 
you want to say the story but you don't want anybody to sympathize with you you know what i mean like you want to be an artist and you want to you want to get people to talk about it so there's a political inclination to tell the story there's the artistic inclination to make this you know something that works as a piece of literature but there's also i think a very self protective mechanism but you don't want anyone's commiseration anyone's sympathy anyone looking at you as a victim anyone trying to ask you if your writing is cathartic you know this kind of thing like you also really really have to protect your sense of self in sharing something this intimate so obviously obviously it was a project that you use the word perfect but actually or saying that you know it uses all of these different techniques or whatever but for me the idea was i was not aiming for perfection i think what i was aiming for is to is to tell the story within the framework of doing the most justice to it you know like how do you, how do you bring out isolation how do you bring out somebody slowly losing their sense of self how do you bring out the huge you know element of demeaning uh, things that men do to women's work to women's intellectual aspirations to women's um, you know how easily we are disregarded as political beings so all of this you know starts to immediately work into form as well you know so i think all of these decisions were where i think it was for me it was very much a practice of working from outside to inside so there would be these things like uh, so i'm going to talk about let's say the political aspect of how this woman was demeaned and reduced to you know some, something caricatural so how do you work that do you use dialogue do you use references and do you use historical allusions to it and how do you circle and circle and encircle the story and it's telling and we'll be back with more from this episode of reading women after a word from our sponsor sponsor of this episode is book of the month which is a fun book subscription where you get to choose a new book each month each month they feature five new and early release books and you get to pick one or two or three that you want Their team does all the research for you, so you know you're getting into a good thing on the very first page. More time reading, less time researching. Many members end up branching out to a new type of book that they wouldn't have tried if it weren't for the book of the month feature. They also love and support the careers of women, and the majority of the books that they select are by women authors. So some of their past book picks have been The Girl with the Louding Voice by Abidare, and we interviewed her here on the podcast. Uh, they also chose A Woman is No Man by A Tough Room, and we have a Q&A with her as well. I love seeing Gia Tolentino's Struck Mirror. Uh, I recently read Writers and Lovers by Lily King, which is one of the most recent picks. They also have The Great Believers by Rebecca Mackay. So they have a wide range of books for you to select from. Book of the month is commitment free. You can skip any month that you want and as many times as you want. Maybe you have too many books on your TBR already. No problem. They are here for you. Book of the month has given our listeners a special deal. You can get your first month for just 9.99 with the code readingwomen. That's your first month for just 9.99 with the code readingwomen. And you can go to bookofthemonth.com to go check them out. And of course, all of their information will be linked in our show notes. And thanks so much to Book of the Month for sponsoring this episode. I 
I think about a lot of the conversations and interviews that I've heard with you about when I hit you and, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of the conversations in the UK centered around whether or not this book is fiction or nonfiction. You've already addressed a little bit about why people are having that conversation, but I, I have to ask, why do you think people care so much? And, and does it, does it really matter if it's fiction or nonfiction? If I think for me, it's not just a question of is it fiction, nonfiction, as much as is it a question of is it a novel or is it a memoir? For me, it's, a, it's much more a question of genre in terms of what am I trying to do? Am I just writing something that happened as it is? Or am I trying to to make art out of it or make literature out of it? And especially creative, imagined literature. And for me, these are questions that, you know, so there are things that happen, let's say, I think, for instance, the universe of fiction has... The, has to be believable, you know. If you, if I read everything as it happened, people would be like, "This is incredible! It just couldn't have happened," you know. So there's that's that's one thing that we owe to fiction as much as we say it's a, it's a product of imagination. You can be absolutely wild, but you also have to be absolutely credible within that little world that you create. So for me, it was very clear from the start. But also this question of non-fiction versus fiction, it's also really a very important question of where do you want your work to stay? Do you want your work to stay in terms of just the theme, you know, let's say domestic violence, marital rape? Uh, do you want it to stay within, which I very much do want it to be, do you want it to stay within, like, you know, the idea of, you know, how do you write literature? How do you write violence? Or do you want it to become, the minute it becomes a question of nonfiction, oh, who is this man she's talking about? Who is the mother in the story? Who is the father in the story? Um, who, who is her third boyfriend in the story? You know what I mean? And then then it becomes like really, really just adjacent to yellow journalism because then people are trying to guess everybody. And uh, then everybody also, it, it, the book doesn't become your book. It also becomes everyone's playing field because there's like, oh, she portrayed me wrongly as if it's about you. So I think there's a whole idea that everybody's left nameless, unnamed. It's also showed that, you know, we are portraying not a person, but a universal, you know. So, yeah, so these were, for me, um, interesting questions. But I also think that at the heart of it, like, beyond, like, yeah, obviously I'm trying to frame this into, into all of these, you know, really polite arguments. But a big question is also, is she lying? And I think this is so important because, you know, this is so close to domestic violence itself, this question of, oh, is that fiction or nonfiction? Did it happen or did it not happen? And that's exactly the question of, you know, what suspecting husbands ask you. Like, did you do this or did you not do this? Are you cheating on me? Are you telling me the truth? And it's also the question of whether people believe victims of domestic violence. Like, oh, he's beating her. Is he really beating her? Is she making it up for sympathy? Or the fact is like, oh, if he's really beating her, then what has he, what has she done? What has she done to be beaten up? Like, why does a man have to get so angry that he's going to beat up somebody? You know, so I think this whole question of how much will you let a woman be I think that's it's so I mean like this woman I'm you know is obviously a writer here like do you let her be like she wants to call her book novel let her call it a novel she wants to call it a memoir let her call it a memoir but then you know I, I find this this quest for truth like in itself slightly 
problematic. So yeah, obviously there's a question of all, also yeah, women and women's experience, but also the fact that yeah, we as a society love gossip, and I think there's layers and layers and layers to it. But also the fact is that once you don't say, oh, she wrote her experience in in one way, you are giving her the credibility of truth, but also on the other hand, you're denying her the credibility of being a creative person. That oh, she she wrote what might be her truth, but she wrote it in like really this beautiful way or she wrote about it in this arresting way or she wrote about it in this intimate way. And so you just stop talking about what she's created and instead you talk about the person. So you, you, don't, you don't center the conversation on the art, you can't center the conversation on the artist. And I think this has been really problematic, not just for you know, women who write, but also women who do any kind of, you know, painting. Women in the arts have just faced this all the time. And I think, yeah. So, which is also why, you know, I could could have just let that slip. We've just been happy. Oh, I get all the, you know, I get this much coverage. I should just be happy and shut up. But obviously, you know, shutting up doesn't solve anything. So, yeah, we are here to, all my writing is to make noise. So, yeah, I'm like, no, no, I'm going back to, I'm going to make noise about this. I really like what you said about how this as a novel focuses, puts the focus on the book as art. And so instead of, you know, people trying to examine your life and, and be like, what's true and what's not, there should be focusing on the book as an art and look at it as its own thing. And I really found this these conversations that have sen- centered around your book. One, I, I think it's great that conversations have been started but also the focus on women's art as art as opposed to like women's expression it's just art like look at it as art as opposed to trying to put it in these little boxes from a woman's life as it were yeah 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 i i, I think i think you have to that's also another thing isn't it so when you're a, when you're a woman and you're creating you just don't have to stop with creating but also you are called into this position i think it's not just true for women who are one of the marginalized people but for a lot of people on the margins you know uh, they they have to defend the making of the art they have to defend the decision to make art and i think uh, i think the reason it feels at least personally to me why that feels such a conflict is because what you're doing is very intrinsic to yourself. Even the art is like something that comes from within you. As much as, you know, the difficulty can come from within you or your experience or your reading or what effects you can come from within you, the process of making art also comes from very deeply within you. But having to defend that, you know, having to put it outside of yourself, having to explain it, I think that's something that, you know, makes it feel like, as if you don't belong, like you have to justify your place there, justify why you, why you make these decisions. And I think it's, um, yeah, it's also how you get, you get worn out, isn't it? I find it a beautiful work uh, on a sentence level and the way it's structured. And one of the things I found really just a well-designed part of the story is that the protagonist writes letters to uh, fictional lovers because she just needs to write and, and part of writing is uh, you know helps keep her sane almost as you know she's in this very difficult situation and so she says to her fictional lover so you now mentally recompose the scene of me but please don't choose one of a battered wife that's an image that will brand itself on your mind and the longer you think of it the more impossible it will become for you to relate to me to love me naturally you will then love me like a scar loves a wound, and I deserve something more. So I wanted to ask you about this image of 
the the battered wife and maybe what stereotypes that society has of that and how this image of the battered wife that often that we hold in our minds might be harmful uh, for women who are actually in this situation and what does that mean to the protagonist okay, so one of these things about structuring these um, uh, this letter writing is also because all of these are written within the context of the novel as something that's not permanent it's just something that's really like something she writes and then deletes and writes and deletes so it's something like you know it's an art that doesn't stay it's an art that's so uh, transient you know that doesn't have what we aim for, which is, you know, oh, it's going to stay long or it's going to be eternal or it's going to just stay, you know, forever. But on the contrary of this, whatever she writes is like a means of escape, but also it's really like drawing on water. In one of those moments, there's this letter, obviously, uh, many of these are uh, letters addressed to lovers, which itself is a form of defiance. But one of these um, defiance is to, is to also be asked to be loved on the terms that she wants to be loved, which is to say that um, she wants to be loved as an equal, she wants to be loved as a woman, she doesn't want to be loved as a victim, she doesn't want to be loved as a survivor, you know. And I think that's a very vital conversation again, because one of these things that happen is that, you know, these are experiences of women, but also women are more than what happens to them, you know. So this could have happened to you, to you, to me, to X, to Y, but we are always larger than the fact that this happened to us. So if somebody reduces all of this and just starts looking at us within the very narrow spectrum of, oh, this person was beaten by their husband, therefore I'm sympathetic to them, therefore I'm going to... It also enables a certain kind of masculinity, a certain patriarchal speech to come there, like, I'm going to protect her, I'm going to give her a second chance at life, I'm going to I'm going to care for... You know, like, then you just basically reducing this person to the fact that, you know, they faced one violence and you know you're blinding yourself to their other aspects and which are far more interesting to them than the fact that you know something was done to them it's very interesting about you know women being trapped in this kind of situation and you know part of your question was like what kind of stereotypes does society have so obviously one of these stereotypes that these women need rescuing or that you know we are taking pity or I'm the kind of such a large hearted generous man that I'm giving her a second shot at life so you have all of these but you also have other stereotypes which are like if you ever are women and you and this is just even outside of the novel you find yourself open about you know any difficulties in your in your relationship or especially you know difficulties that also involve violence there's a certain way in which everyone also stiffens a bit because the idea is that if you're a woman in the situation then you are looking for an out and a lot of people assume perhaps subconsciously that the out that you're looking for is another man and therefore you're out to get their boyfriends or their husbands which also makes it really difficult to to forge feminist or feminine or womenly solidarity because you know you just become this on the one hand 
there's this victimhood or there's the fact that you know you're experiencing violence but in the same breath you're also express uh, you're also experiencing ostracization like you know or isolation because oh this person becomes what you can call in chemistry a free free radical or a free molecule or whatever they call it so i think all of these stereotypes are like you know also what um, makes it very difficult for women to you know trust and to open up but also to feel even sure about themselves and um, uh, this this particular example is i think also a very crucial question about love and things like this because I, a lot of my work not just this novel but you know when you write about women or victims of violence communal violence or caste violence or women who are victims of oppression or the fact that you know immigrant women who you know like especially as I'm an immigrant myself have left behind a certain life in a certain country and trying to start afresh there's a very thin line between being helpful to somebody and being kind to somebody and trying to act as i think what's the exact word the savior the savior and i think this kind of savior complex is what we don't need so yeah that's that's kind of what i was trying to write possibly in that sentence without having to launch into this little mini essay that i'm now talking to you <laughs> and we'll be back with more from this episode of reading women after a word from our sponsor the sponsor of this episode is kobo audiobooks as you all know i'm a huge fan of audiobooks and Listening to audiobooks lets you fit more into your reading life. You can listen while you work out, walk the dog, have dinner, play video games, or really basically anything. And Kobo has a huge catalog of audiobooks, including bestsellers and originals across all genres. And so today they have given you, our listeners, uh, two ways to save. The first way, you can start an audiobook subscription and get your first book for free. So you start a 30-day trial, download the app, select your book, and start listening. The book is yours to keep even if you cancel. Every month afterwards, you just pay $9.99 and you can choose an audiobook from their catalog regardless of the list price. That's a better price than the other monthly audiobook subscriptions. Uh, some audiobooks can cost upwards to $35 or $40, and so a Kobo audiobook subscription is one of the best ways to save every single month. The second way you can save is you can use code RW40 to get 40% off one of their select audiobooks curated by Kobo's audiobook experts, and they have something for everyone. To get started, visit kobo.com slash readingwomen. Start listening to Kobo audiobooks today. Uh, so that's visit kobo.com slash readingwomen. Thanks so much to Kobo for sponsoring this episode. And of course, all of their information will be linked in our show notes. I really appreciated that section and it was very thought provoking. And I think much of the novel revolves around the protagonist trying to define herself in the face of a society that continuously tries to define her as one thing or another. And anytime she pushes back against those boxes, uh, she always seems to end up accidentally stepping in another one almost. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. true. Yeah, that's a bit, that's a good that's a good observation. I I kind of think that you know um, what you say about these boxes is also very interesting, which is also why you know writing, which can seem very important, is is still at least like a feeble cry to to say no. I reject this label. I reject this box. Mm, 
and that's that's where I think it's coming from. There are these sections where she is trying to write because she is a writer, but her husband has controlled every aspect of her life and she's trying to just write and then she'll delete it so he doesn't find out that she's written. But the fact of having written is is part of, like we've discussed earlier, is part of what keeps her sane. And I really like what you just mentioned there about how you know, that's her form of protest, uh, the way that she writes, and, and that's so incredibly important to her. So when you were when you were writing the book, did you know that you were going to have her have these fictional letters in there in the way that it was going to work like that? Or was it something that developed as you were working on it? Because I'm sure, like most writers, you've written a lot and then you edit it down to what ends up being the finished book. No, I, I think that it was good as a literary technique to incorporate these fictional letters into the book because it. I think as as a literary, you know, as you know, what you can say a technique or a tool, it lets you capture little bits of fragments, but also it shows you how these things fall into place. So uh, when a when a when the narrator decides to leave her marriage, it's uh, as much as all of this escalates and. And, you know, there's this plot, but there's also little moments, you know, in which life turns, you know, like there's a little understanding that comes, like something comes unlocked. So, you know, there's this rain that's described again in all, all of these letters. But what does the what does the rain make her feel like? How, how does it undo her? How does, you know, something that's quite natural occurring outside, how does it unsettle her? How does it make her reflect on it? So, yeah, obviously this allowed me to go into these little aspects or, you know, this reflection about uh, clothes and uh, being hung out to dry and, you know, this woman just looking at them and stuff like that. Or, you know, I, I think this, all of these little chapters had, uh, little letters had something in them, you know. Or there's this letter about ghosts and stuff like that. Or they, they could be used to, is to capture, this is the portrait of something that's very claustrophobic. So, you know, somebody's really limited to, to being in a very constrained space and say, how does a person within a constrained space um, uh, first uh, reiterate their own freedoms, which is by disobedience, which is by, you know, what you can call thought crimes? And so one of these uh, one of these writing of the letter is basically an self-indulgent thought crime. You know, you get to write, you also get to violate what is a sacred bond of marriage. You get to violate what is actually forcefully demanded of you, which is loyalty by saying that, you know, you can hit me, you can do all of this. But if you're going to force me into submission, you cannot because even if I'm constrained in a space, I'm free to act as a person, you know. And I think uh, part of the the idea of using letters, obviously in, in literature, there's a long epistolary tradition, but um, these are letters which are possibly eventually sent or not sent, but yeah, or at least they exist. But here yeah, I wanted to capture something that, you know, just exists for the sake of, you know, just being a defiant person, but also to capture these little turns of thought, the way all of this, you know, in a way crystallizes within the narrative. And there's just something about being a reader and, and holding these letters in your hands, as it, as it were, and you see these testaments of her defiance and the fierce spirit that she still has in the situation. And there's just something about mm -hmm. 
you as the reader have these letters that she has deleted, but she has deleted them. So, you know, in the universe of her story, they no longer exist, but we, the readers still have them. And there's just something about that that has made me linger over these letters and reread them. I would say most of them, the other sections of the book, because there's just so much meaning within just such a short amount of space. Yeah, I think there's the other aspect of it as well, because the the larger framework of the novel, if you, if you look at this, and thanks really for even highlighting that to me, because, see, it's, it's very easy and essential and important and also sensationalist, all of this to talk about the violence that's happening, you know, oh, he hit her, she got a bruise, okay, it was brown, it was black, you know. This is the way in which often violence gets, you know, talked about in very dramatic, figurative, cinematic, arresting ways. But I think the entire project of this book, if you look at it right from chapter one to the end, or actually the story of this marriage, or a lot of, you know, abusive stories, is that they are stories of erasures. If you want to say how a woman disappears, and I think that's the largest violence is that you could be really alive, you could be giving birth to children, you could be cooking three meals a day, but then you're disappearing. And I think that's literally the worst kind of violence that can be inflicted on a person, you know? Like, slap me ten times, but don't erase me. And I think there's this this whole idea that obviously the first is wrong, but I think this, this systematic erasure of a person that goes on within, let's say, toxic abusive relationships is something that is so poisonous, but also has to be highlighted. So in the beginning, you see the narrator is like trying to erase the way she dresses herself. She wants to have a plain face. She doesn't want to give away anything. And then the erasure is obviously in the way in which she starts to not discuss things of her past, not, not do anything that's going to, you know, identify her as an individual she doesn't have you know even her own account she doesn't have access to her own emails and then obviously all of these little creative letters you know which she finds an outlet and which is said yeah we as readers have them but which have completely disappeared in her own universe but this escalates and escalates to a point where all her emails are deleted how do you even start looking at that how do you cope with erasure so which is again a very interesting question because um both in and outside the world of the novel, I think the question is, what do you do when your life has been erased? How what do you do when your life has been put on hold? And what do you do when you've been told that you don't have any self-worth or anything to show for yourself? And in one way, it is, of course, it's very essential to kind of look at it and to kind of really break down and think everything's gone, like this is all I did and all my work and it's gone. And obviously, that's, that's a very essential, interesting reaction to combat erasure but the other thing is also to look at erasure as something that actually sets you free like well that part of my life doesn't exist anymore and what do I do next like because creativity doesn't just stop at one point you know it's something that's within you and how, how do you express that how do you bring yourself into into being a person and also this theme of erasure that you know goes on and on I think it's also one of these very telltale things of abusive relationships possibly even more than I think you know physical violence would be largely because we wake up to it so late in the day and I speak about this as somebody who's not only written about it, but as somebody who's experienced it. And and I think that, yeah, that sense of the self, like, is so important. Oftentimes we expect that if, a, you know, you have a controlling abusive spouse, that the worst would be the physical violence. But like you said, I had to put the book down 
when he started taking over her life and her personal identity, her emails and her the her profile, because to me that violence is just is way worse than the physical violence because like you talked about, like he can hurt her body, but then he goes for her sense of self and who she is as a person. And I feel like oftentimes we don't talk about that part of these kinds of relationships, how there's so much more going on than people might see on the outside that there's other things as well. So yeah, it is. It is. And also, I think that that's another very interesting thing, which is also that, when you when you when you're somebody who is discussing this kind of violence, like I'm talking about this to you, it's it's much more easier to say things like obviously that's called coercive control. So what this person is doing is to yeah, I start taking control of your life in one aspect or the other, or to say there's gaslighting and things like this. But also, how do you create literature that doesn't use these exact words that you know we now use for these things? Like how do these things appear to someone who doesn't exactly have to borrow these words, you know, what is the experience of it like, and like, you know, just using a label for some experience. And I think some of it was to actually portray that. It also happens really insidiously, isn't it, in terms of getting them to be, to willingly forego these things, not as control, but as a question of, oh, do you trust me? Or uh, we are now together, so this is who you are. And, you know, to kind of subsume somebody, but the subs subsuming somebody is really not in order to to start something cumulative with them but basically to erase them and to make them kind of some kind of shadow or something well i'm sure i could talk to you about this book for hours but before i let you go um who are some of your favorite indian women writers that you would want to recommend um to our listeners i think uh, in my teenage years i, I read a lot of kamala das uh, who is this Indian poet? She's um, she's not as famous as she should uh, as she should be. She passed away a, a decade ago or something. I think she's phenomenal. So I wish everyone reads her more. And then, of course, uh, you know the most uh, the most obvious choice that comes to mind is Arundhati Roy. Uh, you know, and I think she was really the fact that you know she became uh, she won the Booker Prize, but more than that, she also became really. A very essential political voice, uh, raising very important questions about, uh, you know, in just most oppressed people, about marginalized people, and the question of dams and nuclear weapons and all of this. So I think I really, really look up to Roy, uh, the Roy. So that's two writers uh, who write in English. But I also think that a lot of Indian women writers are writing in our regional languages. So I'm a Tamil woman. And I, um, as somebody who is bilingual, trilingual, I translate a lot of Tamil women writers as well. And I really hope they get a larger audience. Uh, so last year I did this chat work with a small British press called Tilted Axis. Um, and we were featuring the work of four Tamil women poets. Sukirta Rani, Gutti Revati, Malati Maitri, and Salma. So I think, you know, if you can just look them up. Um, we did a book called Translating Feminisms, but you can come across their work. I'm also translated a whole uh, novel by Salma. It's called Women Dreaming, and it's like three generations of women, uh, who, Muslim women in a small village. So obviously I, I really read a lot of uh, their work that emerges in Tamil as well. And which I think is uh, phenomenal. Well, I'll definitely have to go check those out. I know Tilted Access, their books are available on Book Depository um, here 
so we could get them here in the U.S. Praises be. Um, so I'll definitely have to go check those out. But thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's a, I really appreciate you taking the time, especially during the tumultuous uh, life events that we're having right now. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you for having me too. So I'd like to thank Mina Kandasami for coming on the podcast and talking to me about When I Hit You, which is out now from Europa. You can find her on her website, kandasami.co.uk, and also you can find her on Twitter at Mina Kandasami, and of course, all of her information will be linked in our show notes. I'd like to say a special thank you to our patrons whose support makes this podcast possible. You can find Reading Women at readingwomenpodcast.com. And on Instagram and Twitter, you can find us at The Reading Woman. You can find me at Katie Winchester. And thanks so much for listening.